The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. It's really good to be here. I appreciate the invitation and I appreciate this conversation, ongoing conversation. For me, it's such a rich part of my personal practice. And I think it kind of goes hand in hand with being a sincere Dharma student, student of the Buddhist teachings, is that we should be, I think, and we are naturally attracted to those places that are, I don't know if we'd call it edgy, but basically places where we're not seeing clearly, <laughs> right? And because there's something to learn and it's liberating to begin to unpack or open our heart, our sensitive heart to those places where we're not seeing clearly, where there's things to wake up to. And tonight, you know, we're curious together about belonging and othering and, and like Shelley mentioned in their guided meditation, you know, the mind is making up meaning all the time. We have a storytelling mind. And in a way, much of what we call reality is just the mind making stuff up with ideas and concepts and stories, constructing meaning, and then being fooled or confused by it. <clears throat> One of my teachers, Joseph Goldstein, used to give the example of little kids putting on Halloween costumes and then being frightened when they look in the mirror. And it's a little bit that way, except this is so common occurrence for us, for our mind to construct meaning in ways that it has constructed meaning. And most of the meaning our mind is constructing is about who I am and who I think you are. And then we react to the meaning that our minds construct. And unfortunately, most of this is in a way below the level of consciousness. We're not aware. So in that sense, we're oppressed and governed by these patterns, these habits. And uh, clearly, our bigger world is just reflecting the cumulative ways that together we construct meaning, and then react to the meaning we construct. And this is especially painful and relevant around the area of race and gender and sexual orientation and class and body size. And I mean, they're just even age, even where we live, how we identify as a religious or spiritual practitioner all the different ways that we construct difference. And it's really easy to misunderstand the Buddhist teachings as somehow saying that, well, the resolution to this problem of our mind constructing meaning and then the mind, because of the lack of clarity, getting confused by the meaning that we individually and collectively construct, we could, I think, wrongly understand the Buddhist teachings as a way of saying, well, stop doing that. <laughs> First, it's not going to happen, right? And uh, 
that's just another way to construct meaning, to sort of say, okay, I'm somebody who's not going to be attached to any meaning that I construct. Because what we tend to do with that idea is we substitute the idea of non-attachment from the actual experience of seeing how our mind is conditioned to perceive other people, conditioned to think about other people, to think about ourselves, and the way the sort of established or habitual ways we view the kind of personality or character level habits of the mind that are deeply entrenched. We tend to just replace that with, or maybe the better way of saying it is we superimpose on all those habits the idea that I'm not attached to those patterns. <laughs> and we don't really do the more challenging, difficult work of getting familiar with how our mind perceives, how our mind thinks, how our mind views. And to me, this is the real work of Dharma practice. So these areas, you know, um, around equity and inclusion and diversity and just unpacking our racial conditioning, regardless of our particular cultural location, it really, I think, I'm guessing makes sense for all of us. Of course, it will be different depending on our cultural location and where we align, where we identify with these different spectrums of difference, right? But it, but it all has to do with getting curious about this meaning-making mind and really understanding it. And so let's just do a little exercise that might help kind of to uh, make use of our time this evening. And one thing you can do, and just not tonight, but I would encourage you to do for the rest of our lives, is some of those places where you're beginning to recognize identity. And remember, the first step is not to think of identity as good nor bad, it's just what the mind does. It's a way the mind uses concept or idea and that's not going to go away, and it, it doesn't need to. It just needs to be illuminated. We need to see what the mind is doing. So one way to do that is just to repeat back to yourself some of the well-established identities that we have. You know, I'm a Buddhist meditation teacher. And we can say that, not out loud, but silently, now you say whatever you want to say, but it could be around your racial identity, could be around your sexual uh, orientation identity or your gender identity, it could be around your class identity, it could be around whether you're bored right now or whether you're excited about what's going on right now. But we have any number of ways our mind habitually creates meaning, perceives frames, organizes experience. And so we can do it intentionally. And the key when you do this is to notice the moment before you repeat that sentence, that phrase to yourself, and notice the moment after. Because we want to see that those ideas, those identities, they have impact, right? They shape 
they condition our experience. When I say I'm a white, straight, now older, <laughs> you know, man, like that, I feel something. That That is as real as anything is real. And then if I continue with some stability of awareness and notice the empty space when that phrase has been spoken in the mind, in the heart, and then there's some moments of silence, and there's that inevitable evaporation, dissolution of that identity, that concept into, you know, the more practiced we are, we really just sense that more open and empty space, unformed space. And then there will be another impulse, another thought will arise, maybe a riff off of, I'm a white, straight, older man, there might be another thought, you know, well, I'm not that old. Or, you know, <laughs> I did Ancestry.com a while back. And it's just interesting to see, you know, now I have a little Middle Eastern blood. And it's like, oh, I got a little Middle Eastern blood. <laughs> you know, whether, first of all, whether it's accurate or not, you know, but it's just like how much... Uh, my mind, just like noticing like how much my mind likes the subordinate identities as opposed to the dominant identities, you know, white, straight, man, well-educated, middle class. You know, it's like, oh, that's, it's just not cool. But, you know, 3% genetic material from the Middle East, oh, that's getting interesting. <laughs> Ruth uh, King talks about this in her wonderful book, Mindful of Race. I really recommend it if you haven't looked at it. Ruth King is a Dharma teacher in our insight meditation, larger insight meditation community here in the West and also a really powerful consultant and teacher in this work of unpacking our racial conditioning. And uh, she put um, a lot into that book, Mindful of Race, including just talking about this point I just made, like when you undertake this exercise and you can even intersperse it as I'm talking, you know, just repeat back some of the identities that are coming up. I don't get what Mark is talking about. That could be your identity. Or I don't like what Mark is talking about. Or this is really cool what Mark is talking about. I'm a member of Portland Insight Meditation Community. I'm a long-term member of Portland Insight Meditation Community, or I'm a new person in the community. I'm one of the teachers in the community. I'd like to be one of the teachers in the community. I'll never be one of the teachers in the community. You know, it's just like, it happens all the time. Or you, you look at somebody else's little rectangular picture, I'm better looking than that person. I'd like to meet that person that person and I might get along, you know, or what kind of name is that? So the, this sort of meaning making, like this is the, um, in terms of Buddhist psychology, this is just the nature of that part of the mind we call perception, where the mind based on its conditioning, and by the way, where does our conditioning come from? None of us chose it, but yet there it is. 
through culture, through genetic conditioning, right? We have this way, and then this conditioning is the force that governs perception, how we recognize experience. That's how you and I could be having a very similar external experience, but have a very different perception, different, very different meaning. So it's kind of the creative act, but the, the creativity is really governed by our conditioning. It is the legacy, the legacy of culture and the legacy of being an animal, you know, evolved, the, con the genetic conditioning evolved through the evolutionary process. So here it is. The way my mind makes up meaning is just naturally, organically coming from those conditioning forces. Well, given that we've had, you know, like here in the West, in the United States, 270 or so years of slavery, and then a hundred years of, you know, kind of a two-class system in our country. And then since the civil rights movement in the 60s, you know, another 30, 40, 50 years of the kind of more hidden ways that discrimination and racial injustice works through the criminal justice system and housing systems and uh, employment systems, structures. So my conditioning gets born out of that, transferred through, you know, the way I was parented and the TV I watched and the people I hung out with and just all those conditioning elements in our culture. So why would we be surprised that our minds have picked up this legacy of injustice and, and violence and harm and fear and all sorts of other sort of not so, you know, tendencies that we're not so happy to acknowledge and feel and name. And so, you know, I, I remember just the, the moment we, ha we were having, this is a long time ago, I think it's been more than 10 years now that we've been more conscious about doing this work. And one of the early years, maybe 12 years ago, one of our early meetings, somebody who I didn't know came and we called it the inclusivity circle, I think back then. And uh, a younger woman, um, BIPOC person looked like maybe African-American person just said, I, I was so now in hindsight, so grateful because it was a real learning moment, but we were just going around sharing our experience. And this person just said bluntly, I thought, you know, I would never come to a class, a Dharma class, a Buddhist meditation class taught by a white man. And it, it really was just like, hit me, <laughs> you know, all kinds of different feelings as maybe you can imagine that I'd have in a moment like that. Being, you know, at that point, I was the only guiding teacher. Now Shelley and I are both guiding teachers at the center, but, um, but it, it was really, it really helped shock me out of this, uh, yeah, just the way that my mind tends to create meaning. 
and to realize, like this is why we have to start to acknowledge the conditioning process of our mind, the way that our, the legacy through no real ignorance on our part, we just, it is our legacy being born in these particular cultural locations as a man, in my case, as a white man, as a middle-class white man, as a straight white man, and then there's a certain legacy. And it's not personal, but I have to be responsible because the alternative to be unconscious and to imagine I'm not, don't need to be responsible, don't need to be interested in it, is just to be destined to be acting it out unconsciously and uh, passing it along, basically. Even someone like myself who doesn't have kids, I'm part of the conditioning process for everybody else. You know, I, we're all making, planting seeds and making waves and affecting each other, even if we're not directly raising children. And on and on it goes. So in that particular case, you know, just being shocked to sort of move from my sort of more individual identity. I'm just a person here, trying their best to be a good Buddhist, you know, Dharma teacher, you know, working hard, you know. And, and, and this statement just sort of shocked me into being able to inhabit my white identity, which I'm guessing for most of us white people, white identified people, it's not, it takes some practice to learn to inhabit that white identity. And then this is another task you can just pick up and practice in these weeks, months, years, lifetimes, you know, just whatever your uh, racial identity is, just practice keeping it in mind as you move through space, cultural space in this place and then in that place. and. And just notice, like I'm a white person in a white space. I'm a white person in, in a mixed space. I'm a white person in a BIPOC space, a, a not white space. And what happens when we start keeping that in mind? I mean, for one, it made it a lot easier to just be sensitive to what it might be like for a non-white person to be walking into Common Ground Meditation Center. And I was shocked about how oblivious I had been, like what that might be like. Like just the, it was shocking the lack of curiosity about what it might be like for someone, you know, different than me in so many different ways. It could be, it doesn't have to be just about race, but that's a obvious, you know, for us in America, in the United States, it's an obvious place where there is this very deep, wide, painful legacy, traumatic legacy that we're all carrying. It's, it's not a problem that uh, black people have, for example. It's a problem that we're all carrying. It's a problem that we all have. And that was sort of part of my own beginning to just take more, responsible, more responsibility for the problem that I have the problem that the organization has, and the problem that we all have, even regardless of our cultural, racial condition, conditioning. We're all 
living out of this legacy of racial hate and racial fear. And not wanting that to be true, you know, it's so, you know, there are any number of ways, um, and this is what I meant earlier, that we misunderstand the the Buddhist teachings that strongly encourage us to go beyond having fixed views and, you know, strong encouragement for non-attachment, it can seem that we shouldn't get involved with identity. But the way to non-attachment or the way to being free from identity, identities, is to really feel how alive they are, how real they are in a relative way. There is both this, you know, it's not perfect to talk about it this way, but I'm not sure there's a better way, but there's this relative reality, which is the meaning our minds are constantly creating, because it has impact in our own heart, as I mentioned, in terms of how we perceive and how we think, and then that ossifies, that gets set as fixed view, kind of established habits that are very hard to change. And then that affects how we behave in the world. And that affects other people. And so these cycles, these patterns of oppressing and causing harm, they repeat. And then the pain and trauma from the harm that's caused keep reverberating on and on. Tangled within, tangled without, who can untangle this tangle? It's a little teaching from the time of the Buddha. I don't think it was spoken by the Buddha, but spoken to the Buddha, and the Buddha responds. And it's our practice. But our practice isn't to create this identity of non-attachment. And I think this, you know, was part of the legacy I've uncovered in my own heart of whiteness is somehow uh, identifying, having the identity, I'm somebody who is not a racist, or I'm somebody who doesn't have racial biases, or I'm somebody who doesn't want to have racial biases, or, you know, all these different ways that, you know, of course, on this level, on this relatively unconscious level, we're going to construct a nice story for ourselves. We're not going to construct a story. It's so shocking when we realize that we do have these biases, as much as we might try to cover them up. If you haven't taken the Harvard implicit bias test, which you can take for free online, I strongly encourage you to do it. There's probably more of these online. This is, for a while, this was sort of the real a good one to do. And it's just a series of photographs and you're asked to respond. But it really points out that even though we know what they're trying to uncover with these, uh, these tests, these psychological tests, it's like, this is the conditioning of the mind. And we all carry this, you know, ways of how we treat people who have big bodies or how we treat people who look in, a, you know, in the way we're conditioned to be lower class or to be marginalized in one way or another way, you know, coming from a marginalized group of one kind or another. 
So there's no way out but getting curious. And I really see this, especially over the years and paying more attention. I really see that this is goes right to the heart of our Dharma practice. That we really need to get interested in these patterns in our mind. And the place to get interested is in our interactions with the world we live in, you know, and just to start to notice gender and sexual orientation when we're in different groups and to notice age and to notice any kind of thing that gives or takes away status like racial identification in our culture, for sure. And just start seeing it as something that is inherently empty, but relatively impactful. And that's the real dance. And here's, I think, the one of the real insights that I've am coming into over the years, you know, not, not done, you know, for sure. But to realize that the deepening insight into emptiness is exactly what helps us to be a relative being, carrying the legacy of culture, learning how to be more skillful, more engaged, more compassionate, planting seeds for justice, instead of setting emotion more of the same. I've, uh, one expression of this insight that I really like comes from John Wellwood, who's a psychologist. I'm not sure he's, if he's still alive. He kind of made a bit, bit of a splash with some of his books um, 10 and 20 years ago and really blending Western and Eastern psychology. And he has this one line, and this will be a paraphrase, but he, he basically is saying, you know, we're not practicing in order to become Buddhas. We're Buddhas practicing in order to show up in our very conditioned places with this legacy of hate and this legacy, these legacies, I should say, of hate and fear and, uh, you know, all the ways that we're conditioned. So what does freedom look like when you have the conditioning that each of us has around race, around any of these spectrums of difference? What does it look like to be free to meet and feel what this conditioning looks and feels like? To see it show up, maybe to see the humiliation show up right after, or the not wanting it to be that way. And to just keep meeting that, understanding that it's empty in the sense that it doesn't refer back to a self, but it's real. It's as real as anything is real in the sense it has impact on the well-being, our own well-being and the well-being of others. There's no reason to neglect this work the idea that things are empty so we don't have to do this sticky work. <laughs> and I think people sometimes think this, like, I'm going to do Buddhist practice because, God, the last thing I want to do is unpack my own racial conditioning, let alone society's 
racial conditioning because it's messy. Or like in our Dharma organizations, to start looking at how power works, you know, or any number of these sticky places are in our personal relationships with our partners or dear friends to kind of look at the patterns that are showing up in those places that we just fall into because of the legacies that are embedded in our heart through the conditioning process, processes, you know, just these tendencies to perceive, to make up meaning in different ways based on how the mind has been conditioned. Who would want to do this work? Well, the only folks who are going to want to do this work are people who begin to correlate this work with real liberation, real freedom, real capacity to be free even as we're doing the sticky, difficult work of being a better human being, learning how to plant seeds for justice. Don't you love that quote? I think it's from Cornell West, uh, a long-time activist, and I think he calls himself what is it? Something like, not, it's not quite a public philosopher, but it's something like that. I wish I could remember. But anyway, he has this great line. Um, Justice is what love looks like in public. <laughs> and this is the thing, you know, it's uh, planting seeds for greater justice and greater freedom and greater equity and inclusion and belonging as opposed to othering, you know, it has its own natural, lawful causes. You know, in our, in our conditional world, things happen because of supporting causes. When there's this, there's that. With the arising of this, there's the arising of that. Without this, there's not that. Without the arising of this, there's not the arising of that. That's the essence of the Buddhist teaching on dependent arising. And so if we're interested in freedom and justice, sounds like our constitution, <laughs> you know, for all, then we have to get interested in the actual causes for that. And the causes, I believe, make sense, right, is to be willing to do this sticky work. All of the injustice in the world, all the unfairness and violence and, yeah, patterns of hate, where does that come from? It can only be the cumulative expression of our conditioned hearts. So that's where we need to do the work. It doesn't mean we don't change policy and we don't name, you know, kind of actions that are unjust. It just means all of these actions and all of these policies arise from patterns, conditioned patterns that are not being felt, not being seen, not being understood. And so part of what we're going to do tonight with our remaining time is we're going to um, yeah, just take a, almost like doing an inventory and especially those kind of identities that you notice there's some resistance in you naming, even in the privacy of your own heart and mind. Like I noticed for a long time, whenever I read 
whenever I heard, or even whenever I had to use the term, the phrase white supremacy or white supremacy culture, it's like, oh, I don't want to have to say that. I don't want to have to think that. And finally, I got interested, like, why? <laughs> it's just words. What is, what, why is that unpalatable for me, just even in the privacy of my own mind, to go, okay, I'm part of a white supremacy culture. I'm living, breathing in a white supremacy culture. I mean, clearly, whiteness, or whatever you want to call it, is the dominant kind of cultural expression, and there are some things we can start to point to about that. And why is that uncomfortable for me to acknowledge? What is it in that that I'm not comfortable feeling? Because whatever it is, it's here in the conditioning of my own heart and mind. And so my choice is always ignorance, remaining unaware, and all the work it takes to stay numb, to redirect, to repress, to pretend it ain't so, which is, it's sort of like lifetimes, exhausting lifetimes of avoiding, or I can get interested. And I can realize that the unpleasantness, if it is unpleasant, it's just that feeling being known. And it's so empowering to not have to run from these, you know, previously unseen, unacknowledged, tendencies. And if we can start doing it in our own conditioning, then we can start doing it in our organizations, in our families, in our relationships. If we can't see our racial conditioning or any kind of conditioning around belonging and othering, if we can't see it in our own mind, we're probably not going to be that helpful. Because sometimes, you know, we see ourselves or other people sort of pointing it out in other places, but they can feel like it's a little false. And I, I think it's often because they're not, haven't done the work themselves. They're pointing it out out there as a way of avoiding doing the work here first. Doesn't mean we shouldn't be pointing it out in these places. I think that can be really helpful. But if we do our own work, then when we start illuminating it in our other communities and our other relationships, it's going to be infused with a lot of tenderness and compassion and understanding because we have the real experience of seeing it here, seeing that it's impersonal and seeing that it's impactful at the same time and that we care about it because it is impactful. It's heavy. It plants seeds of suffering for ourselves and for others. It should be abandoned. So when we see it in others, it's not a gotcha moment. <laughs> you're a white supremacist. Gotcha. <laughs> that makes me less of a white supremacist because I just pointed it out. <laughs> I'm on the good side again. And there's a lot of that going on, you know, at least that's my perception. I see it in myself, so I know there's some, some of it going on. <laughs> and, uh, and it's, you know, when we just acknowledge that, we can just acknowledge, oh yeah, I just... I don't want to be bad. But the thing is, it's not personal. It's not about you or me being bad. It's about tendencies that are helpful and tendencies that are not helpful. Ways of perceiving that are helpful and ways of perceiving that are not helpful. Ways that I 
construct meaning that are helpful, ways that I construct meaning that are just dead weights in my heart and in the world, aren't helping anybody. Maybe I'll just read a little from uh, Ruth, uh, her book I mentioned. Uh, this is, uh, I'll just read a few passages to finish up my time and then pass it back to Shelley. And this is near the beginning of the book and Ruth is just kind of setting up this basic premise that we have to, especially as Dharma practitioners, we have to be really nimble and fluent in two worlds. The what you could, might call the ultimate reality and the relative reality. And she writes here, in relative reality, we are some bodies formed, habituated, ego-driven, and relating to life through concepts. In ultimate reality, we are nobodies, formless, empty of self and eternal. In relative reality, I am a woman, African-American, lesbian, great-grandmother, artist, and elder. However, in ultimate reality, I am none of these things. I'm beyond conception. I'm aware of dancing with the karmic rhythms of life. In ultimate reality, there is neither race nor reason to suffer. We are undivided and beyond definition. But in relative reality, we are all in considerable pain as racially diverse beings driven by fear, hatred, greed, and delusion. In relative reality, language is commonly how we relate. Talking about race is messy because it brings to light our racial beliefs and values expressed in ignorance, innocence, and righteousness. Many of us show up with good intentions, but are braced, bruised, and afraid. We put our foot in our mouth, we get scared, become frustrated, or belligerent, or just shut down. We feel unclear, unskilled, angry, and cautious. Our mind plays habit songs that get in the way of our ability to connect and be open to what's right here. It probably sounds familiar to some of us in doing this work. Thank you everyone for listening. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website www.commongroundmeditation.org Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.